Good evening, you're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Here with me tonight is Three Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, so today we are here to celebrate the holiday season the best way we know how, and that is to watch The Lion in Winter, uh, which <laughs> is probably the closest thing we've ever come to a licensed Crusader Kings 2 uh, movie. Uh, we'll also be touching a bit on... Beckett, in which uh, Peter O'Toole plays Henry II, which he also plays in The Lion in Winter. But I think we're going to be predominantly focusing on The Lion in Winter, uh, because aside from sharing a character and an actor, there's not very much connecting these two productions. Uh, and they focus on vastly different things. Do you think so? Yeah, you know, it feels it, it feels like they, uh, you know, actually, I'm not even sure Beckett's really about politics. Um, interesting. I'm not sure it is entirely about politics, but I think the, I think that the way it is about politics is interesting. But yes, we're going to talk most about Lion in Winter, which I think is, is the best Christmas movie ever made. It's, it's certainly up there. Uh, and a lot of credit for that goes to Peter O'Toole's mesmerizing performance as Henry II. Uh, obviously, Catherine Hepburn as Eleanor of Aquitaine is likewise unforgettable. This is probably one of her best roles. And then the entire cast is basically just stunning down the line, right? Anthony Hopkins as a young Richard uh, Lionheart. Timothy Dalton as Philip II. Uh, it's, it's an incredible cast. And it was the first movie for both of them, I believe. Oh, really? Like that's Hopkins and Dalton both getting their start. Yes, fascinating. And the whole thing is held together by a really deviously brilliant script by James Goldman, uh, which is dropping a bon mot every other line. Uh, sometimes almost to his detriment. Right? It is such a snappy script. Sometimes you can feel the author, the author cackling. Uh, you, you hear the author cackling a little bit too much in the background sometimes, but that doesn't detract from a truly remarkable script. Uh, but, Troy, why don't you set the stage for us a little bit? Uh, we've got Beckett and Henry II. Are these history films? <sighs> to an extent. I mean, I think Beckett is more clearly a history film. It is about a real historical event, a historical story. It is a, the biopic of Thomas Beckett, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who defied uh, Henry's efforts to make the church in England subservient to the crown. Um, and it ends up with uh, Beckett, who in the movie is played by Richard Burton, uh, being killed. It is a... Um, movie about uh, two people who are friends and then Beckett's made archbishop by the king and Henry is expecting uh, Thomas to be to end all of his troubles with the church because that was friends in place but in a case of, of bureaucratic capture is a political science term for it. <laughs> yeah. he, change, he changes the office because he changes office from Chancellor to Archbishop of Canterbury. He now sees things as a churchman does and demands preservation of all of those rights that he opposed when he was the Chancellor. And so it is, it is clearly a, his, a history movie, um, which I rewatched uh, last week. And I think I like it better on the fourth viewing than I did in the first three. 
Uh, it is a movie worth. I will keep going back to because uh, Peter O'Toole is just so Peter O'Toole uh, in it. Um, for a man who made his name playing the subdued, quiet uh, Lawrence of Arabia in Lawrence of Arabia, most of his roles after that became known for a lot of shouting. Uh, and both Lion and Winter and Beckett are full of Peter O'Toole shouting, shouting at kids, shouting at wives, shouting at soldiers, shouting at God. Um, so Beckett's clearly a history movie. Lion and Winter has a history setting, and it is, like you said, it's, it's Crusader Kings, the movie, uh, but it's a family drama. It starts as, it started on the stage. Uh, it was a play, a very well, very celebrated play. Uh, it's been restaged uh, many times, and it's been was refilmed in two thousand three with Patrick Stewart and, and Glenn Close as the two protagonists, uh, Henry and Eleanor. But it is, it is a it is a not a history movie, but it's a politics movie because it is about. It's almost a submarine movie. You have people hmm. trapped in this castle, and they have nowhere to go, and they have to work out their tensions. Um, it is a, one of these bottom. They can move. They can move about the castle. It's not a specifically a bottle movie, but they are all trapped there. No one can go very far, and everyone knows where everybody else is. Um, and the person who controls the space, Henry, doesn't control everything going on within the castle. Um, so there's scheming, there's lying, there's some great speeches, uh, and a lot of humor. Uh, it is, I, you said it's, I think it's, I think the first Catherine Hepburn movie I saw was Philadelphia Story, and I was instantly in love, and Lion in Winter just confirmed that crush for me when I saw that shortly afterwards. Uh, she is just a tower of beauty and power uh, that you just can't turn your eyes away from. Uh, she did win the Oscar for her performance here. She shared it with Barbara Streisand that year. And O'Toole was nominated. This is one of the many movies he was nominated for, uh, but did not win. I think Beckett was. A no I think he was nominated for Beckett as well, and lost in for Beckett. Uh, so he should have won for this one, I think. Yeah, I have to double check who won that year. But yes, I, I agree. I think he yeah. should. He, he, he won a whole lot of other. Uh, he didn't win the Oscar for this, but he won a lot of other acting nods uh, for it. Uh, critics awards and that sort of thing. Um, it is, I think, one of O'Toole's better performances. Uh, I think it's one of his strongest. And his, um, even though he's yelling a lot, there's a lot of subtlety to it. Um, so why don't you tell us what what's at stake in Lion Winter? What is the what is the plot? Well, it's interesting. It sort of tells you right up front what this play is in dialogue with, in some ways. What is this a spin on? It opens with Henry II telling the story to his uh, lover Alice of King Lear and how this legend of an English king unwisely dividing his lands. Uh, between three children leads to ruin and it haunts him because as he says, I am the greatest power in a thousand years. And at this point, uh, that might be overstating it a bit, but this is probably the high watermark of England as a continental uh, power, right? This is, this is probably the zenith of them being able to unite France and England uh, into, into sort of a single political unit. And the problem facing him, is that at this point he has three sons. He had a fourth who sort of 
uh, looms in the background of this movie, uh, young Henry, who does not, who who did not survive, uh, in, in this movie's telling, did not survive to adulthood. In history, uh, things played out really, really differently. And this is true of both movies. Both movies use history as a prompt, as a backdrop, but then basically do whatever the hell they want with it. Uh, but in this, in this play, in this, in this film, Henry is a King Lear who is aware of the story of King Lear, right? This is, this, this is a guy who read the one version of the story, realized he doesn't want it to end that way. So he's got to figure out a different way to do this. And, and what he realizes here is that power is indivisible. Uh, he has to appoint an heir. The other tension is that he desperately wants to be loved. He desperately wants the ties of family and the security that comes with being a healthy family. But he is torn between that and his recognition that to rule in this world is to be deceitful, is to be oblique, is to mask your emotions. And so the other tragedy here, and this I think is afflicting every character, is that there are classic familial dynamics, like divorce dynamics, uh, children not being certain they have their parents' love or not feeling like their parents ever valued them appropriately. They have all the things that regular people have going on, but the gasoline poured on it is medieval court politics. You can't just be a son. You can't just be a father. You're also the Aquitaine. You're also England. You're also France. It is... It is a, if you don't know a lot about Henry II, it is really an outstanding, the Anjouan Empire, uh, the early Plantagenet. It's a fascinating, bloody, angry period. We have uh, 10 years before, and the movie takes place in 1183. Uh, in, it didn't actually happen. There wasn't actually a Christmas summit at Chinon. But 10 years before, it's at 1183. 10 years before that was the Great Revolt. All of Henry's sons, except for John, who was too young at the time, rebelled against him. And this led to his putting his wife in prison. Um, this movie sets up the idea, what if he lets Eleanor out of prison and the King of France comes for Christmas and they can settle everything right there in a summit? And nobody likes anybody. Nobody trusts anybody. Um, and it is a movie about... Um, you're right. It's a movie about people who realize that their roles, that they can't just be a family. And I'm not even sure they want to be. Um, it is, I mean, there's not a lot of love. No, there's this feeling that love is missing, that there should be love, but there just isn't. And all the kids in particular, well, it, it, it's funny. Um, so the, the chosen heir, John, uh, just a brutal version of King John, sort of the the child version of the, the guy we'll come to know from the Robin Hood legend. But this John is just a piece of garbage. Yeah. Um, it's it's a cruel portrayal in some garbage ways. Isn't, garbage isn't, this is something you should throw out. Yeah, like Nigel Terry plays John as basically a complete dumbass, slack-jawed yokel, selfish, spoiled, weak, um, and yet, for whatever reason, this is the kid that Henry has latched onto. This is the kid that Henry feels is the son that loves him and that he loves best. Left out in this is 
Richard, who is his mother's son, is uh, not only is he currently the Duke of the Aquitaine, uh, hugely wealthy and powerful region in Western France, but he is also her favorite child and the one that sort of learned to sort of grew up at her knee. And so in the, in the family dynamics, uh, you were either Eleanor's or you were Henry's, but you certainly couldn't be both. And then there's Jeffrey, who is neither's, I guess. Je Jeffrey, there's a devastating moment. It is so funny, but it is such a brutal moment. Uh, when Eleanor arrives in this movie and greets her sons, and she says something nice to John about how much he's grown up. She remarks to Richard uh, what a strong warrior he's become, how she follows all his she follows all his slaughters from afar uh, because he is just a constant uh, warrior. And then she looks at Jeffrey and she just looks at him for a moment and says, Jeffrey. And nothing else. And that is how she greets Jeffrey. And that is how Jeffrey fits into this family dynamic. And as you might expect, Jeffrey has become a really resentful schemer who sees all, but is basically invisible to his parents. Yeah. Um, Jeffrey's the Duke of Brittany. And throughout the entire movie, he's he's always has, has a, a plot. He's switching sides. I'll be John's uh, prime minister. I'll be Richard's prime minister. He just wants a spot. He wants a seat at the table. Uh, he schemes to overthrow them all with uh, the king of France, Philip, who is played brilliantly, I think, uh, by Timothy Dalton as this very young, somewhat resentful uh, young man who hates what... Um, Henry did to his father, King Louis of France, who was Eleanor's first husband. Uh, Eleanor went on crusade with uh, King Louis, and then Henry stole uh, Eleanor away. Um, and so we have this cycle of humiliation for France. And this is, uh, you can tell that Philip... Uh, wants to get everything back. And so Jeffrey leans into this and tries and fails miserably. I mean, in many ways, Philip is the only one at the court who sees everything that is going on. Yeah. And part of that is because Henry still views himself and still is. He and Eleanor are both master schemers. They are master politicians. She is Eleanor of Aquitaine for a reason. She's not, they don't call her queen Eleanor. She's Eleanor of Aquitaine for a reason, which is that she is a power unto herself. She's effectively a state unto herself or was prior to this Royal marriage. And so she has like, she divorced the King of France and smoothly took up with Henry. This is the level of independence uh, she she had is pretty incredible. And she navigated these politics her, her entire life. Henry, likewise, is a brilliant schemer, a, a brilliant politician. Um, there is the sense that maybe he has won his kingdom a little bit more at the tip of a sword uh, than via straight scheming. But he has the capacity to do both. Um but the difference between them and Philip, who is likewise, you know, as you say, Philip has a clear vision in some ways because his primary, like his personal interests and his state interests perfectly align here. What is good for Philip uh, as a person 
just unleashing all his suppressed rage and anger and frustration at this British family, just unloading on the on, on these cousins, basically, um, and just letting them have it. That's also good for France, right? Like setting them against each other, having the uh, Angevin Empire fall apart is undeniably a win for France. So he, of all the characters, he's the only one whose motivations are really aligned, uh, whose identities are aligned. Henry's no longer are. The entire – this framing device of um, he doesn't want to be King Lear, the thing that comes up again and again here – is that he is so acutely aware of his mortality. Maybe he could see things clearly if he were immortal. He didn't have this pressure of time. But the thing that is beginning to haunt him is he is aware that he is aging. He is aware of his growing frailty. He is, he is aware of uh, the fact that one day he will depart this stage and he doesn't like the players who will replace him. He doesn't like the options he has for, for heirs. And he's beginning to feel like he's got one last chance to make everything right, both for England and for his family, for his feelings about uh, where, where he's at with his family. And so as brilliant a schemer as he can be uh, in this movie, these two things are constantly at war and constantly caught, like constantly causing him anguish. Yeah, it's, this is a movie full of, you say it's a very quippy script, and it is a very quippy script. Uh, it is one of the most quotable movies, and a lot of the quotes are about how disappointed everybody is, uh, even the amusing ones, where uh, Eleanor says, I don't much like our children, uh, which kind of, that could be the theme for the entire film, I don't like our kids, uh, where... Uh, Richard spurns uh, Eleanor, saying, "Look, you you don't care about me. You just care about hurting our father. You just want to. You don't care if what happens as long as Henry's entrails are spilled out, then you're happy. This isn't about me. This is about you two. Um, and one of the, a very here she is trying to butter him up in the garden, and he just spurns her. Uh, poor Alice, who um, is." betrothed to Richard and has become Henry's mistress and Henry at various times in the movie says, okay, you, okay, you can marry Richard. Oh, no, you're going to marry John. No, you and I are going to run away and the Pope's going to make sure this can happen. She's kind of the innocent in this. She's the pawn and you can almost see that she's really the only person who I think wears her heartbreak on her face through the movie instead of in her words. Um, but this is a movie that is full of, a, of disappointment, and even the um, it, it is. I mean, I I'll, I keep going back to. I mean, Henry has this great speech about two thirds of the way through, and it is about you know, how he was. You know, um, my life, when it is written, will, will will read better than it lived. I was the ablest. I was the ablest soldier in an able time, and so on and so on. I married out of love, a woman out of legend. I mean, that's like the. A brilliant! I just love that line so much. I mean, oh, it's one of the greatest speeches in like theater or movie history. It's, and just, it's a masterpiece. And then he ends it with, "But I have, but she gave me no sons. I have no sons. I have three whiskered things." This huge, big speech of how much he's accomplished, and yet all I can think of, and yet it's all nothing. Um, 
where, where Lear, you know, asks his daughters, uh, to marry who, whether they, whether they love him, he knows the answer. He knows his children do not love him. Even John does not love him. John loves what Henry can give him. And he knows John is an unfit heir. Uh, but he's, I wonder if there's how much of this is a, there's a story of the emperor to Tiberius who chose Caligula to be his heir because he wanted somebody who he knew couldn't measure up to what Tiberius had done. <laughs> and I wonder how much of that is kind of some subtext here that he knows that Richard's going to be a more legendary warrior than Henry. Um, this is a, a note I made, uh, cause this jumps out at me every time I, I, I see this movie. The first line of the movie is Peter O'Toole looking into the camera, teeth bared and screaming, come for me. And then he's mock fighting with John. Yeah. But in the moment, it's the snarl of like, come for me. And he wants that. He wants his sons to show fire. He wants them to show spark, but he doesn't really, right? Like he's, he's one of those, he's the classic, like, the dad who won't take it easy on his kids says he's being tough on them because he wants them to, you know, I want them to be better than I am. I want them to to grow yeah. beyond me. But actually, the minute they finally beat him, he'll be pissed, right? Like, that's the kind of father he is, right? The one who, you know, you beat him, uh, you know, in in a video game and he will no longer play video games with you, right? Like, that yeah. is the kind of dude he is. But he thinks, he thinks all this stuff he does, all these tests... He thinks they're fair. He thinks he knows what he wants. But really what he wants this affirmation is that his sons are good, but he need not fear any of them transcending his own accomplishments. I mean, he put down rebellion after rebellion. And there's a moment where uh, where John pitifully says, you know, g- 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 give me the throne. And he says, there's no point in giving you the throne because Richard will just take it from you. you. You won't be able to beat him. And John says, well, well you can beat him. And Henry said, well, I won't be here, <laughs> you poor guy. Yeah. I mean, and a few years after this alleged uh, Christmas, Richard does beat his father. And there, there is another civil war after this coming. And uh, Richard wins that one. Uh, eventually, the son does beat the father. The legendary warriors just can't win forever. But yeah, there is this sense where... Henry always thinks is in competition uh, with his kids because he has been uh, because Eleanor set them up to rebel against him because young Henry uh, wanted the throne too soon um, because Aquitaine wanted more independence because medieval politics. What can you do? Uh, because of the meddling hand of France, all of these reasons. But there is always the sense that Henry wants his legacy. He wants to have a legacy. He wants to have an heir, uh, which is why his final solution is just lock up my three sons like I locked up my wife, and I'll marry the young princess Alice, and maybe we'll have a kid. And and Eleanor is taunting, yeah, what kind, what kind of kid is that going to be? What kind of kid's going to turn out from your old age? And remember how how a lot of our kids died. Uh, yeah, she basically lays out for him the other fact of life yeah. in this era and, and transferring politics and yeah. a dynastic system, which is that everything can go wrong. Yeah. And he should know this. They've been through this. They lost yeah. many kids. And the thing she is warning him is basically for your plan to work, 
everything has to go perfectly from here today and you have to live a long time and remain healthy in that. Can you can you thread all those needles? And the answer is maybe, but it would be crazy to bet everything on that. It would be crazy and cruel to bet Alice's life and any kids they might have. It would be crazy to bear uh, to bet their lives on that. And there's this really devastating line um, from uh, fr- from Eleanor where she where where you know she warns him. Uh, that, you know, Richard will absolutely kill any heirs yeah. that uh, Henry has with Alice. And Henry says, you wouldn't let him do that. And she just looks at him and gives him this, like, really malevolent smile. And she says, let him. I push him through the nursery door. Yeah. And it's just another great moment. But but also, it's it's very much like these are the politics of this time. They're They're negotiating a really messy divorce. And he wants to start a new family and sort of fix the mistakes of his previous family. But also, the fact of their life circumstances is such that not only does he have the usual threats of, like, aging, but, yes, this entire dream he has of, well, I'll create a better heir with this woman who really loves me and will be a healthy family. There's just, he doesn't have time. And even if he has time, the odds are against this working out. It is... It is. You have to wonder. I mean, that this historically didn't happen. But just thinking strategically from a Crusader King's perspective, or even just a personal perspective, what the plan actually is? Does he have a plan when he plan when he gets everyone there for this meeting? Because his demands keep changing. Even if he wants to say, okay, well, Richard will have the throne. Please sign this document. We'll put Richard on the throne, but John has to get Aquitaine. My big beautiful. Dumb, stupid boy <laughs> gets the richest part of the kingdom because at this point, the kings of England, for the most part, are really interested in France. England's just the money they use to fight the wars they're fighting in France. That's all England is. Uh, it's kind of ironic that of this family, John is the first real king of England uh, because Richard spends most of his time on crusade and focusing on uh, wars in France. John, because he loses everything in France, uh, is the first uh, real king of England of this whole lot. Um, but so does he have, so he has this plan, you know, give John Aquitaine and Richard can have the throne and all of this other stuff. Oh, the, the, and there's always the issue of the Vexen, which comes up. And if you don't know a whole lot about the uh, political theory, the Vexen's very important. In fact, the Vexen was the dowry of young Henry, uh, the first heir, uh, the co-king, it was a dowry of his wife, uh, Margaret of France. Henry dies, and the question is, what happens to Margaret's dowry? Does it go back to France, or does it belong with England? And because the Vexen is a one day's march from Paris, England wants to keep it. So this is always in the balance. So he has the politics. He's run, he has his plan with his own family. John gets Aquitaine. Richard gets England. Everything's great. Uh, Jeffrey gets stuck in Brittany. He's always going to be stuck in Brittany. And that's never going to change. There's also the, the issue of what he has to do with France. Because Alice, who is the sister of the King of France, is betrothed to Richard. And the Vexen 
and Philip saying the king of France thinks that belongs to him again. So there's all of these competing politics. And I'm wondering if there, if there really is a plan or if this is just dialogue. So I think this is <clears> – <throat> you touched on something that I'm not sure is a good or a bad thing about this. Uh, even larger than the is there a plan here issue is what percentage of lines in this in this screenplay have any bearing to what characters actually intend or mean or want to do like yeah. you would have you you can almost you have to break down these scenes almost line by line to begin assembling an idea of what are the truths that keep coming up that people are mixing in and are they mixing those truths to sell their lies better? Like when does, when is someone finally revealing what they've wanted all along when they claim this happens multiple times is the, one of these characters will sort of pull the curtain back and be like, aha, this is what I really intended. This is what I really wanted. And then they deliver another really bracing speech to sell you on that idea. But if you really pay attention to this movie, it is, a, it is a hard movie to follow in part because at any given moment, most of what these characters are doing is lying and ad-libbing new lies on the fly to persuade the skeptical children, ex-lovers, partners that they're sharing the screen with. And... So I think even beyond the does Henry have a plan issue, the other thing that can make this movie a bit frustrating is while the performances are great, there are so many moments where there's a really affecting reveal or a character seems to finally unload a heavy burden. And then it is undercut moments later by kind of a, aha, got you uh, type type maneuver and i don't think i'd ever realized until this viewing just how little i come away from this movie knowing about what these characters actually want and this goes back to your opening question regarding this movie is it a history movie because in many ways, it's about people, they're in a historical setting, but the historical circumstance, first of all, didn't happen. The historical situation is certainly uh, accurately drawn. The historical moment didn't happen. Or if this is just a setting for this wider dialogue, this angry, backbiting, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, oh my God, it's my mom, uh, type movie. Yep. Where it's just, you know, planning and revealed truth and aha, did you know that your son was gay? Uh, moments. And which makes me wonder and think about the, the, the time period when this play was written. And you know, people generally don't do movies set in history that weren't real or plays set in history that weren't real unless they're trying to capture something about their time. Something they want to capture a, right. either an eternal truth or something going on in the period that is of period or temporal relevance. 
And I'll be damned if I can think of what's going on, what was Goldman trying to get at by writing this play. It's uh, wrote it in the mid to late 60s. The movie itself is a late 60s movie. Um, it's a movie that Peter O'Toole really wanted to get made. Uh, he had to, he, he sent the script to Hepburn and she was in mourning for Cary Grant. And this script brought her out, kind of out of retirement, uh, out of her movie, out of her malaise, uh, her grief, because she wanted to do this with O'Toole. Um, so I'm trying to, think, so they have this great movie, this great cast, and it's not like A Man for All Seasons, which is about, which is a, a film about truth, about truth to power, about corruption. It's a movie about corruption. And the one honest man is because there's never going to, there's always going to be a time for a one honest man movie. And that's what A Man for All Seasons was. This is the families are really bad. Yeah. Power is corrupting. Uh, but there's no lesson here. There's no moral. There aren't any good characters except maybe Alice, uh, because she is really an innocent, uh, through all of this. So I'm trying to figure out what is, not what the meaning is, because the meaning's fairly clear. What the, I think it is one of my absolutely favorite movies ever made. But I'm still trying to figure out if it's not about a historical moment, but is set in a historical moment, what Goldman was trying to get at. Yeah, I think for me, as I watch this movie, this feels like a really bruising play about broken families and the impact of divorces and people starting new families sort of on the shattered remains of of the old one. And I wonder, like, in 1968, was it easier to talk about this through the lens of this famous historical couple and with their titanic... Uh, love affair and equally titanic splintering. Um, is it easier to have these su- these small subjects, these domestic subjects of you know parents who didn't express affection in the right way, mm. or weren't there for parent, or weren't there for kids, or parents who prioritized career over family, or you know men who move on to the younger model. Uh, when it when it comes to the romantic attachments, which there it, were many of, because Rosamund makes an appearance, the famous Rosamund, who is Henry's most beloved mistress. She makes a, not an appearance physically, but an appearance in memory. So it's a, it's a pattern of Henry of him cheating on this woman he married out of love. He's always cheating on her. Yeah, and so I, I kind of wonder, like you know, by 1989, they will make a divorce movie. That's literally called the War of the Roses, right? That like yeah. it's it's um, it, it's Michael Douglas, uh, and is it Kathleen Turner? It is Kathleen Turner. Yeah, where now you're taking a major historical blow up, uh, a, 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 you know, the, a, a, an English Civil War, and now you're taking that and applying it sort of tongue in cheek to the level of hatred and uh, sort of take no prisoners dynamic of a divorce in 1989 is this kind of the reverse of that where okay now in 1968 it's way easier to talk about these things if we say we 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 set it at a remove mm-hmm. and we locate it 
in this in this moment between these characters and then we can then we can really pull out all the stops too right like you're like with this scale of characters you can really be pretty shameless in how these characters act toward one each other mm-hmm. t- toward one another i think that there are things that these characters do and say to each other that if you Put it at the scale of, um, say, the subject was Roses, right? Another great, like, unhappy family movie, I think, made around this period, uh, where, you know, if you if you locate some of this stuff to a small family kitchen in post-war America, some of the stuff becomes nightmarish and unforgivable. Certainly doesn't become funny. But if these people, as shitty as they are, um, and as human as they are, also happen to be nation states unto themselves. Uh, unto themselves, it remains kind of funny, right? right? Because to an extent, what you have here is England screaming at the Aquitaine, uh, you know, trying to <laughs> trying to figure out if the Aquitaine ever fucked Thomas Beckett. It is. It could be that. I mean, but you mentioned that it happened to a famous couple. The movie does nothing to set you up. And I wonder how many people actually knew who these people were. I got, I, I, I watched. It doesn't even some have of opening the, titles. That's true. I mean, I, I watched the opening of the uh, 2003 uh, TV movie version of this with Stuart and Close, and it starts with a context-setting historical paragraph, an opening battle from the 1173 uh, Civil War, and then flashes forward to where the movie starts. So you have the first, like, five, ten minutes setting up, okay, here's what's going on, here's the background. It's never established anywhere in the 1968 movie who Eleanor is. You have to learn that through the context of the movie, who Henry is. Um, If you know your Robin Hood, you might get an idea who Richard and John are supposed to be. Um, Now, interestingly, the movie still works, whether you know that or not. Because I showed this uh, to a friend uh, last Christmas. Uh, I said, oh, why, don't, why don't we watch one of my movies for a change? And I showed it to her, and she was absolutely hooked. She was like right, right into this. Like, uh, Even though she does not know the history very, very well, uh, she didn't stop and ask me questions. She was just right into it from the characters. She followed the plot very well. Uh they didn't know where all these places were, but it didn't matter. She knew they were important to the characters, and that was the important thing. So the stakes are really, really obvious. Yeah. So whether this is a fictional character or a real character, I think that you're right. Uh, with the under- that setting at the remove does put the domestic strain in a different place. Uh, so maybe that is part of um, part of what is going on. Uh, but it is interesting that it's that they didn't have to do any of that context setting in 1968. Maybe people in 1968 did know Henry II. I somehow doubt that Americans do a lot about Henry II in 1968. Well, yeah, but, you know, the the thing that occurs to me is it begins life as a play. Yeah. And I do think... A very a cer- successful play. Yeah, and I think at that point, plays are... Like, the theater is enormously self-referential, right? Like, as, as mm-hmm. a form to its detriment. Uh, there are times that like Broadway plays will sort of have nods to Broadway audiences that feel 
incredibly provincial if you're mm-hmm. not super bought into the whole like Broadway ideal. Um, and so I do think that the Lion in Winter approaching from a period in history that people in general might not know super well, but theater audiences who make a point of like at least knowing their Shakespeare and knowing the antecedents to Shakespeare probably do have some idea. Right. Um, and, you know, you know, you can boil this down to, do you know that England and France were always at each other's throats in the Middle Ages? Right. Yeah, pretty much, like, you know, that's probably your point of entry, right? That's, you know, it's it's the king of England um, at, at France's throat, but he's got to wrangle this entire nightmare of a family uh, in, in order to get what he wants. But the, the funny thing, as personal as the stakes feel in this movie, Troy, mm-hmm. uh, the way... So much of the drama here is about family dynamics more than, like, great historical dynamics. To me, the history here feels roughly right. Like, it, it, it's it's a conceit, but in terms of the things it is saying about the nature of power in a period like this, uh, the nature of dynastic inheritance in the way the person, the, the way that monarchy blows the personal into the proportions of the national. Uh, I think this movie succeeds pretty well. And if you look into the details of things it alludes to, it's playing fast and loose with chronology. It's playing fast and loose with who is where at this moment. But it is getting at things about these characters and their relationships to each other and their past. You know, Eleanor of Aquitaine, when she has these great speeches about forcing her husband to take her on crusade, this is stuff that actually happened, right? Like, in the details, the things it uses to color in these characters' backstories, it's usually pulling from something fairly historical. And I think this is another reason I think this movie is more intelligible and more interesting to me than Beckett. Mm-hmm. Because when I when I look at Beckett, to me, it doesn't feel like it's about history at all. Like, yes, it's about the story of Thomas Beckett. But... It's also just shredding the specifics of that story at every turn. Like, it turns it into a story of suppressed nationalism. Uh, you know, Thomas Thomas Beckett is a uh, – he, he's a Saxon collaborator. This is the big thing in the first act of, of Beckett uh, is that, you know, Thomas Beckett is just hanging out with uh, Peter O'Toole's Henry II and – Oh, O'Toole is this vicious Norman king uh, ruling over these poor oppressed Saxons, and he he calls he calls Beckett his friend and collaborator. He he is a collaborator selling out his people, and it's like the notion of I don't know how how much nationalism would have registered in this period in history. This idea that like uh, it's time for the Saxon awakening, brothers, and must rise rise up against the Normans. There there are tensions there, but at the same time, I don't know that this kind of nationalist conflict is really a feature of medieval politics. Certainly the notion that a nobleman who serves his lord could be a national like a collaborator, a traitor to the nation would have been pretty alien, but that's not, but Beckett doesn't care about that stuff, right? Beckett is, is interested in putting this in the post imperial terms 
of the 1960s, of uh, the post-war terms, of who sells out to the brutal occupier. Um, and, like, you know, you look into that history, nothing there in this, nothing in Beckett's telling really holds true. See, I don't see the nationalism plot in there at all. I think it's a red herring. Because none of, it's not after Beckett takes the Archbishopric, he never talks about Saxons versus nobles. He brings on a Saxon uh, wannabe assassin as his assistant, but the Saxon versus Norman thing vanishes entirely. The fact that he is Saxon, a lot of people condemn him, condemn him for being Saxon. Nowhere is it established as a motive or as an issue. It is an issue of uh, one man has maybe scruples and one man doesn't. Uh, it's kind of we have this uh, thing. Uh, the, one of the motivating uh, things for Beckett, or this is implied to be, in the opening when Henry the uh, Second in Beckett is being uh, ready to be flogged in penance, he asks, you know, is it about Gwendolyn? Was Gwendolyn why you did it? And Gwendolyn was a woman uh, who was captured in Welsh rebellions. She becomes. Uh, Beckett's uh, bed slave falls in love with him, you know, as they did, of course. Um, Henry steals her from Beckett and she commits suicide rather than submit herself to Henry. And this is portrayed as more of a motivating moment, I think, than anything nationalist. It is the idea that, oh, this guy will take anything just to establish that he's the top dog. And I'm not sure... I want that, even though he goes with him to France afterwards and everything's very friendly until all of a sudden he becomes archbishop and changes his mind. And I, I think that's one of the big problems with the movie. Now, it's a problem with Beckett in general as a character. Historically, no one has any idea what Beckett's motivation was in his apparent shift in policy. Uh, was it a shift in policy? Was he just lining his purse in different ways? Historically, that's still very much under debate. In the movie, it is very, very unclear what the motivation is. Does he actually become a saint? Does, oh, I'm an archbishop. I got to be a good guy. Uh, is it bureaucratic capture? Because the Bishop of London says, well, you're the archbishop. You got to take care of archbishop things. And then the Bishop of London spends the rest of the movie trying to undermine him. Um, is it uh, some sort of quasi-national thing, as you say? Is it... Uh, just this bromance falling apart. Um, is it well, sub, is it sublimated homoeroticism? Uh, that's just creates Henry's overreaction to everything. Um, that he that why won't this guy submit? Why won't this guy who's my best friend? Why won't he submit to me like he used to? Uh, it's never clear what anybody. Except for Henry, we know what Henry is motivated by, his base appetites, his desire for power. We have no idea what any of the other characters are motivated by, any of the major characters. Uh, it was really just Beckett. It's, only, it's, really, it's, it's a two-character movie. Everyone else has just moved around. We don't really, so I, I think that's a problem with the film in general, why yeah. I kind of have – why it takes so long for to work – why Richard Burton, who I think is greatly overrated as an actor – is very weak here because you're never clear what he is thinking or what he is doing or why he is doing it. Burton comes across like a guy who is attracted to scripts that seem smart, topics that seem serious, and then intones his way through them, giving them the weight he thinks they have. 
And if there's not much there, he's not going to find it. O'Toole looks at the Beckett script, and I think he correctly interprets that there's pretty much nothing there. So what does he do with it? Uh, he basically decides, okay, Henry II is a murderous, like, man-child twink who just wants – he just wants to be with Beckett. And just wants to know that Beckett is always his, um, but can't bring himself to just say that. Uh, and is Beckett, in fact, running from, as, you know, as you said, like homoerotic tension? Because uh, the way O'Toole plays Henry is that O'Toole absolutely is in love with Thomas Beckett, right? Henry II is absolutely in love with Thomas Beckett. Beckett, throughout this movie, you never, and I think this is a real problem with Beckett, but I think there's an aspect of Burton's performance here too. He's playing it so close to the vest that you just feel like he is just doing things to move the plot along, but you never have a sense of there being a consistent through line. Well, was it was well was it Gwendolyn? Not really, because he reacts to Gwendolyn the way he reacts to everything he re- that right. happens in this movie, right? With sort of a ponderous sadness and being like, "Oh, Gwendolyn." I cannot endure being loved. Like he sounds like Mr. Freeze in the animated series. Honestly, that like <laughs> I like last night it was driving me crazy how much his line readings in Beckett sound like when Mr. Freeze is explaining his backstory in the animated series. Batman, you don't know what it is to lose someone. You know, shit like that. That that is the way Burton is playing this character, but it also makes this notion that the movie is trying to sell you on he is the sinner who finds a cause, who becomes a saint. And it's a bad cause. Yeah, yeah. Troy, <laughs> tell the audience, what is the precipitating incident? What is, what is, the, what is the hill the church is going to die on in this movie? The issue is, that, as with most medieval uh, crown church issues, is who has power over the priests and who has power over crown lands. Um, the crown thinks that priests who commit crimes should be tried in the same courts as uh, everybody else. And the priests say, no, no, they should be tried under church courts where they usually get off pretty easily. In this case, a priest, I believe, rapes another, rapes one of his parishioners, mm-hmm. is arrested by a nobleman, and is going to be tried by that nobleman, tries to escape, the priest tries to escape, and ends up being killed in the escape. Because the nobleman didn't turn the priest over for church justice, but executed his own noble justice, the crowd, the Beckett is very upset and excommunicates the noble. The issue is, a rapist priest should have been tried by his friends on the clergy instead of by the secular authorities. This is a, I think, it is, a, for our movie made in, this, made, this only made in 1964. This only made four years uh, before Lion in Winter. Um, and O'Toole's playing like, on the same character generations apart. Uh, but I imagine, no matter which Henry it is, he would have taken the same position. That it's, you know, 
This is a bad cause. Yeah. <laughs> that ra- rapist priests should be able to be get let off by their church friends or, you know, sent off to a monastery or murdering priests or thieving priests or anybody uh, instead of, you know, being tried by the law of the land. And this is uh, a throughout. I mean, it's introduced as a tax dispute at the very beginning. But why isn't the church paying their taxes? Though it becomes, oh, the church just wants to have absolute control over everything it has. Um, and the precipitating break is over a rapist priest who gets killed trying to escape from a nobleman. Yeah. And, and it's just the From the thing. vantage of 2019, it's also just like, so wait, so the guy who was trying to keep the church from covering up for from abusive priests is somehow the bad guy here? And the guy who was like, no, canon law. You know, clergy, clerical courts. That's how we should handle these things in house, without anyone outside knowing what is happening. Uh, from from the vantage of what has been revealed about, you know, the institution of the Catholic clergy in many places, yes. uh, it's just staggering that an audience could look at Beckett, see like drawing this line in the sand, and be and and think, yeah, that's that's the fight. That's that's the cause uh, we're going to fight for. And Beckett, the, the film, I think, is trying really hard to make this a Christian story. Um, I think this is the other the other misfire here is that had it just been a story of medieval politics. It's funny. Uh, a Man for All Seasons is a story about personal conscience against the backdrop of medieval politics. But it handles the politics and the conscience stuff really well. The two inform each other. The two yeah. the, the two work in harmony. This just feels like it keeps tossing new stuff out. So there's this moment um, where the word comes, I think, that that priest has been killed. Like before, the, before Beckett can take any action, that priest has been killed, either killed during the escape or executed immediately after. And he asks to be alone. And the important thing to remember is he's not really a priest, right? He was ordained literally the day before uh, yes. he was consecrated archbishop. So, like, he is a total plant. He's never, he, like, he has never really been a priest. Um, and so there's this moment where he goes and he prays before a statue of Christ. And the light, like, it's classic you know, filmmaking from this period, like literally the the light breaks across his face as he... It, 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 it's filmmaking for, from like a decade earlier. I mean, this is like 1950s stuff. Yeah, this is Ben-Hur. It's it's so many movies of that yeah. genre. As he, as he says, like, I think I finally know what it is. I, I think I finally know what love is. And the love being Christ's love. Uh, and he finally, he finally comes to Christ's love through realizing he needs to prevent <laughs> prevent courts from trying abusive priests. And it is such a ridiculous conceit. Like, this is what this guy's Christian conviction is founded on. And he expresses and, 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 and no other. Is, uh, oddly enough, that is one of the few things in the movie that is very historically accurate. Yes. Because <laughs> uh, a lot of the stuff is, you know, I mean, it's like Beckett wasn't a Saxon. He was a Norman. Uh, that's... So that was just added in, and you know Henry the Second wasn't was wasn't really wasn't even Norman. He was from Anjou, uh, so eh, but he was just set up for Orange, blah blah blah. Uh, but the 
But historically, yeah, Beckett's big problem with the Clarendon constitutions was, hey, you're going to be arresting my priests and putting them into courts. And this was enough to create the big split, uh, with, you know, threatened excommunications and uh, Beckett running away to France and trying to get an audience with the Pope. Uh, the I, I do love how the Pope and Italian cardinals in this movie oh my talk God. with the most exaggerated. John Gilgood of, puts on no accent as the King no of accent, France. No, he doesn't, and he's outstanding. He got a he got a supporting actor nomination for a very short role. I think he's quite good. But the the the, uh, the Pope and his cardinals they have it's a me Mario the cardinal. It's bad. It's, it's like it's hilarious. I would say that, like, my jaw is on the floor. Because, like, that whole movie, I'm just like, okay, so I'm not doing the accents thing. Got it. And then he gets to France. And also, it's the most, like, they tried to get guys who, like, big, beefy mafioso types that you might find in, like, a crime film of the period. You know what I mean? Like, uh, all the cardinals you see in this scene are just, like, basically... Goomba looking dudes in uh, church robes and such. And yes, just these exaggerated accents. And that's the other weird thing is the movie wants to be a Christian movie, but not a Catholic movie. But the only cause that Beckett is really like suiting up for is Catholic independence, right? Catholicism as a law unto itself. And so Mm -hmm. when he finally gets to Rome, it's also trying to have it, it this other way, which is that Beckett is a true Christian. He is a man that you know, through like through grace, has become a saint, uh, and is the instantiation of Christ's will, and that is separate from this obviously corrupt, uh, cynical church that yes. he they, they, reports they, they, to. They admit they admit to taking bribes to influence their decision. And you back to oh, just send me to this monastery, and we're supposed to expect this guy's going to be really, really happy at this monastery in retirement. And he stays there for 30 seconds. The movie starts really yeah. booking it through these mo- – like, the last act of this movie, it doesn't give any – there's no room for any of this to breathe. No. He goes to this monastery and is like, I will just – you know, I will remain Archbishop of Can- Canterbury, but I will be away from power. I will be a bishop in ex- an archbishop in exile, and I will be content with that. The next scene we get is him basically getting bored at the monastery – and being like, you know what I really have to do for Christ? I have to go back to England and yeah. resume my seat. And it's and the movie just wants us to believe in his virtue at every turn. And I just don't buy any of it because it is also self-serving. And it is, it is also Bolt from the Blue. Yeah, I mean, but much of this movie is Bolt from the Blue. Yeah, there's very few uh, clear motivations in a lot of places. Now let's take a look at. I mean, the unifying thing between these two movies is Peter O'Toole and the character he's playing, Henry II. Yeah, I said these are two movies that were released four years apart. And he's playing. It's very rare you get um, somebody playing uh, the same character uh, in two very different movies, uh, many years apart. That are, this is the sequel. Uh, these are, they're both films based on plays, but aside from that, uh, there's not a whole lot, uh, to unite them. So what do we make of, and, you know, we, Peter O'Toole is nominated for best actor for both <laughs> and doesn't win, which I think is sad. 
Uh, Burton's also nominated for Beckett as well, and him not winning is not as sad. Uh, so what do we make of Peter O'Toole's understand? Does he think, do you think he understands Henry II? Does, do you think that, what do these movies have to say about the reign of Henry II? To me, it feels like O'Toole sees no through line between these characters. Um, I, I think to me, it's O'Toole approaching two different scripts mm-hmm. and treating them as separate performances and so i think to me i think if there's a through line it is that both plays view henry as a creature of both appetite and neediness Mm -hmm. um there's not enough in beckett to hold that together because again as you say it's a two-person play and so O'Toole's approach there is to mostly and, and it, there's there's a lot of it in the text directly too like all the mind games with Beckett are, are around these these sort of uh, you know latent gay themes but in Beckett everything is very much about Henry feeling spurned in different ways by his partner Right. Like that in many, like every time Beckett puts other interests ahead of Henry, it is a breach of uh, their romantic contract that they're not allowed to consummate in the Lion in winter. The appetites are <laughs> they're more omnivorous is the way mm. I would put it. Um, and so is the neediness. The, the desperation now is not for the approval of one person. It is for this notion that he has a family that loves him, that he has the refuge of familial love. I do have to admit, though, that I, like, I will register a lot of discomfort here as well, uh, which is that both like, The Lion and Winter um, very much... Beckett does this to an extent, too. This notion that... The sexual entitlement of powerful men uh, is yeah. really a heavy theme in both of these. And from the 2019, that's probably a, a smart theme in many ways. But the thing is, it treats it very lightly. And so when he says to Alice, oh, here's how you know I love you. Let me list all the people I've banged. And as an aside, he's like, and little boys. Uh, pederasty is just kind of a tossed off like notion in uh, the Lion in Winter. And it's only really made real when Philip reveals that he was assaulted by Richard uh, as a child. And mostly that is treated as a revelation that Richard is gay. And that is sort of the shocking reveal. And that sort of spoils uh, Henry's relationship with regard for Richard at that moment. But I, I think what like in terms of the way henry is portrayed in these two movies is creature appetites desperate for approval the lion in winter is kind of too casual for my comfort about mm-hmm. the scale and range of appetites it ascribes to henry um without any sort of weight or reckoning interesting I think it's a very good interpretation. And it really is. I mean, I, th- I think there must be, I think there had to be some kind of a through line. Um, 
somewhere in there. Um, and Peter O'Toole was, in fact, uh, in line to play uh, Henry II uh, uh, for Beckett when it was on stage, uh, but had to back out of playing Beckett because uh, David Lean wanted him for something a little bit bigger. Um, so he ended up playing it in film, uh, but one, one didn't get to play it on stage, uh, which I think is an interesting. Uh, it came in the late uh, 59, I think, uh, Beckett was uh, performed on stage. So I think this is a role that, a role or a character, I think, that Peter O'Toole uh, must have had some side of, either the, the Beck, either the Beckett script really drew him, or either something about Henry II, who I think is this, I've been trying to find a good biography of Henry II, and it's really hard. It's surprising that this, really a giant of the medieval era. I mean, it's easy to find a biography of uh, King Richard, uh, the Lionheart. Um, one of my favorite uh, books I want to recommend is one called Richard and John. It's a double biography covering the child, the, the lifetime of Richard and the lifetime of John, uh, back to back. And it's a really, really uh, strong book. And that, of course, deals some with Henry, but it's not about Henry. Um, I, I think there's, I think there is something of a through line here, and I think you can see. I mean, Beckett's barely Beckett's mentioned, I think, only once or twice in *Lion in Winter*, but his ghost is there. Um, you can't think of the reign of Henry II without thinking of the ghost of Beckett. Uh, what we may think of Beckett today, and historians disagree on that. He did. He did. He, he was canonized. He became a saint. He became a martyr of the Catholic Church. Uh, Henry II had to undergo flagellation to do proper penance for not direct for enabling the murder, if not necessarily ordering it, um, and the martyrdom. Uh, Beckett had been a tutor to his kids, uh, so there's. I don't think you can have a line in the winter without understanding. I don't think the Henry II in Lion and Winter exists without the Henry II in Beckett. I think the characters are, I think there is a through line of just this desire for control. This desire to always be the master to everybody. I mean, you said that, you know, Lion Winter, he wants people to, he wants people, to, although he wants people to, to like him. He wants to have some sort of connection with his family. Um, but you see some of that in Beckett where all he wants is kind of, is this one person to love him. And this, he finds this one person who loves him because he pushes everybody away. He yells at his wife. He hates his kids. He yells at his mom. The Henry II in Beckett is very focused on Thomas Beckett. There's, it's a very narrow attention. It's a little bit wider in The Lion of Winter, but it's still the same desire, I think. It's still the desire to have somebody listen to you, obey you, and love you for it. Uh, so I do think yeah. I see something, something. I don't think it's necessarily intentionally, but I, I think I can see more of a through line in the personalities, or at least the themes of kingship, of power, of what it means to be an absolute monarch. This wasn't I mean, this is before the age of absolute monarchy, but let's face it: Henry II could do pretty much whatever he wanted. Yeah, it's very much like before the age of absolute monarchy. But if you were an effective enough monarch and you played your cards right. You wouldn't be the one that that got challenged. Maybe your kids would, uh, yeah. but but you could you could like have what you wanted. No, I think that's a, I think it's a very good point. Uh, that this, in which case the the through line becomes to some extent the very human tragedy to an extent is all of us 
are going to find these scars inescapable. You know what I mean? Like all of us will always have these very small scale sadnesses and hurts and regrets. And there is like outside of finding and creating sort of a, a happy, stable life for yourself. Um, there is nothing that can fill that bucket. And if you're, if you are looking to, if like, and no amount of power can give you that, that is the, that is the one sort of security that power can't give you, right? This, yeah. the security of affection, uh, of, of trust. And I think that's a very good point that in both of these, uh, Henry is a man who can have whatever he wants, but the only way he knows how to go about getting affection and love and attention is to dominate and attack and, uh, and take, and it all blows up in his face because that destroys love that destroys trust. Um, no, I think that's, that's a good, that, that is, that is a good point. I, I do wonder if there's something in that idea that spoke to a tool, right? Well, he plays a lot of these characters in the sixties, right? Yeah. And throughout, I mean, he's, I mean, like through the sixties, he's nominated for best picture, like four times, best actor four times and never wins. Uh, but he has Lawrence of Arabia bef before in, uh, 19, he's nominated in, he's nominated in 1960 for that, I think, uh, 62. And there you have this great person, this great general who's by himself. He's a, he's a leader, but he's always isolated. Then we have uh, Beckett, where it's, he's isolated with one person, no one else can understand him, and the one person who understands him leaves. And then he's nominated for, uh, Lion in Winter, where he's somebody who pushes his family away, he's surrounded by a whole court, and nobody guessing what I understand. Then he's nominated for, for Goodbye, Mr. Chips in 1969, which probably breaks the mold altogether. But we have, you know, the we have the stuntman uh, in the 70s. We have uh, my favorite year, my favorite year, which is a fantastic movie. We and have, very much about like what it is like to be a Peter O'Toole like figure when your best days are behind you, and yeah. all the like li like the Lion in Winter, there is no longer a lot of road ahead of you to make these things right, and you just have to live with those mistakes. But also, you're still the same asshole in a lot of ways who made those mistakes. Yeah, it is. He is. There's another one. Uh, the one where he plays the English madman. The ruling class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he's played somebody who's clearly lost his mind, uh, but keeps being thrust into positions of leadership. He fails upward, even though he's a madman, which is kind of the story for a lot of medieval monarchs, if you think about it. Uh, so I th he tends to play these strong characters with strong personalities, uh, gets recognized for it over and over again. Uh, and I wonder if that's, if that's just O'Toole or if it's uh, casting directors or something. Yeah, I, I suspect it's it's probably a combination. Um, I'd have to learn more about O'Toole's career because because like you know obviously there were longstanding issues with alcoholism there as well. Yes. He's a very self defeating character. There are there are so many great interviews with him online on YouTube with you know Charlie Rose or David Letterman or whomever or Johnny Carson, and he is clearly lit. Yeah. In like 85%. Of well, and he's cursed with being a really charismatic drunk. 
Yeah. Um, like O'Toole wore that identity really, really well. Um, well, he was in that generation with, you know, Burton and yep. uh, Oliver Reed and all of those hard drinking uh, British stage actors. Um, speaking of the stage, I think something else that I do really appreciate about these movies, particularly, particularly the Lion in Winter, is that I think in 1968 and certainly within a few years, we're going to see a real trend toward much more naturalistic acting, right? Mm -hmm. um, sort of the, the new wave uh, type performances, uh, a lot more uh, verisimilitude in in the way actors characterize uh, their their roles. And I think we start seeing less of these really exaggerated uh, portrayals, these exaggerated stagey characters. There's also less of a pipeline between stage and screen. Yeah. Uh, after this era, the era of converting hit play to a movie uh, is just sort of winding down. And to an extent, I think what's sort of remarkable here is that, and this is uh, this is ebbed and flowed, like the rap on Catherine Hepburn during her uh, in the peak of her career was that she was stagey, right? Like audiences didn't like a lot of her roles because Catherine Hepburn was pretty much always Catherine Hepburn. You cited the Phil the Philadelphia story. There are moments where she may as well be on stage, right? You know, the speech about like, I want to be like, am I Yar? You know, like, you know, the, the analogy is about being yeah. uh, a good ship. Um, but I think plus, very plus no, nobody in the world has that accent. That is not a real accent. <laughs> I don't know, man. You know, the, there were such pockets of weird, posh accents in the American Northeast at that time. The part of me is like, yeah, probably. That may have existed. Sure. <laughs> I could I could believe that that's what Catherine Hepburn sounded like when she was five. Um, but I think what's great in The Lion in Winter is this might be my favorite role of hers mm -hmm. because it just lets her pull out all the stops and do the things she is best at. You know, absolutely flirt with the camera, uh, you know, sort of wink at the audience, uh, dominate the stage, do those really stagey, like, she doesn't do those um, slow transitions between moods, but like O'Toole, will just turn on a dime, uh, go from deep despair and sadness to just nasty glee in a heartbeat and do it with a shit-eating grin. And it is such a domineering performance. It is so stagey, but it is so perfect for this role that at every turn, you're kind of left in awe of it. And it's kind of a, like, it makes me happy watching it because it is watching her do the thing she has clearly always been best at in her career. And this time, there's material and a director who's willing to just let it go and it works nobody's trying to like nobody's telling her to t tone it down they're encouraging her to turn it all the way up and it makes the movie uh when this movie was made peter o'toole when line of was made peter o'toole was 36 Catherine hepburn was 59 and there's never a doubt in my mind that these two were deeply these two characters were <laughs> deeply deeply in love uh, at one time, and that makes their hatred, I think, and mutual loathing all the more powerful. Yeah, I think, it, you know, as, as you say, like, well, what is real in The Lion in Winter? 
ultimately, I think what the movie is arriving at is that these characters can't disentangle their lives from one another. Yeah. It's too late for that. And the big questions that still loom over the relationship are, did you ever really love me? They were never certain that, you know what I mean? Like what, what killed their relationship is like we were saying this insecurity about, am I truly loved? Am I safe with this person? That is clearly what devastated their marriage. The suspicion that there was always someone else. There was always something else. There was another hidden motive and what they're trying to get at in this movie, these two characters is they are without ever being vulnerable themselves. They're trying to work out. Did you care for me? Do you care for me? Um, and until that question is resolved, they can't quite let the matter rest. They can't just break up and be done with each other. And there's right. too much. And there's too many things holding them together. There's a family now. There's there's a shared history. They can't escape it. And it's history with a capital H. This is the kind of the brilliant. This is the other part of the brilliance of this conceit. They are imprisoned within history, mm -hmm. world history. But also that is their personal history that we that you know we all share with partners and ex partners that. We can't escape. And I think that's another reason this movie really, really works. And to bring it back to Beckett, does this person love me? To bring it back to Beckett, I think of all of those scenes where Henry is waiting for Beckett to come. Why hasn't he come to see me yet? Uh, where is he? And you can there's a scene where there, uh, Beckett's being called to trial and he's missed the first two appointments and Henry's skulking up there wondering, is Henry going to, is Beckett going to come today? Is Beckett going to come today? Will he care enough to come to my court to face his charges? He's just like, you know, the high school kid waiting for his yes. crush to walk through the door and wondering why she hasn't answered his emails yet. And there's this entire sense that he's wrapped everything up into this relationship, this two-person relationship and they're i mean they're trapped by history by their history together uh, as once very close friends and by the political positions they've put themselves in um and i mean i, th I think pretty much every great history movie is about people either transcending their time or why they're stuck in it yeah um i think every great movie kind of has to face that uh that challenge and you know lion and winter is really about how people are stuck in a situation thing there, there is no easy answer to the only answer to the positive in lion and winter is for henry to die and the sons to sort it out yep because there's nothing as as eleanor tells him there's nothing that he can do to secure his future unless he kills all of his children which he won't do. He will not go. He he makes, he goes down there with a sword at the very end, but he just can't do it. I mean, he could easily send a bunch of guards down there to do it for him. If he really wanted them dead, he could do it, but he won't. Uh, so he's just going to, you know, throw the kingdom to the wolves when the time comes. And, um, and the movie ends on this note of, acceptance but also denial he ends up in a very yeah. similar place where he was at the beginning where he knows these problems are unsolvable you ask did he have a plan maybe he was hoping one would come to him but over the course of this very long night he realizes this is a box there's there's no escaping this box but at the end of the movie he packs eleanor off and, and it's so sweet and romantic and it's like what did, did you guys just forget what happened the last three days it's 
it's a tremendous ending in terms of is yeah, it we gave it a shot yeah is it trying to be a happy ending is it just a, a smirking one but i kind of i think it kind of works for me uh in yeah. terms of when he says i hope we never die let's do it all again next year and he's defaulting to that position of we probably have time right yeah. like he's real he's faced the unsolvability of these problems they have despaired and wept together in the dungeon and then in the cold light of day they dry their tears they say goodbye and henry basically arrives at this is great we've probably got time to figure this out let's do it again next year it's been fun and it's a funny it's it's a funny ending but also i think it's kind of a true one right where you have these moments of catharsis but they pass just as quickly right that like moments of catharsis and revelation can be as transitory and false uh as us being deeply in our deceit henry's sort of henry and eleanor have faced these demons during the night and i think by morning in some ways they're reconciled to them but they're also still kind of telling themselves the story that there's something here that can be salvaged that this could still have a not tragic ending. We're just not going to get to it today, but we have time. We could talk for hours and hours uh, about these movies, obviously. Um, I've already recommended uh, the book. I'm going to find the author's name here. Richard and John Kings at War by Frank McLean. Uh, it's a book that I recommend, uh, that I can recommend. I've read it a couple of times. And it's uh, highly recommended for understanding some of the Andrian politics uh, going on. I'll also recommend, if you can find it, it's on all, all of it is on YouTube, uh, by the way, The Devil's Crown, which is a BBC uh, series, uh, very low budget, but quite well acted, with Brian Cox as Henry II. And it goes through all the Andrian kings from Henry through John, and uh, it's quite... It's more historically accurate. Beckett's kind of an asshole, uh, so it works out pretty nicely. Uh, do you have any media you'd like to recommend? Gosh. Um, I think... Because we are eventually going to do a show on it. I think Beckett is a fascinating movie to watch. And in addition to it being in dialogue with uh, Lion and Winter, I think if you want to see Beckett done right, you need to see um, A Man for All Seasons. Like, it is a definitive work about an ordinary good man caught up in toxic contemporary politics and trying to find a way out with his soul intact. And uh, I think for all the steps that Beckett takes wrong and, all you know, and, and puts wrong, I think A Man for All Seasons does them right. And I think watching them side by side is a really interesting contrast between a movie that is trying to tell a story about morality, but has no morality itself, uh, which I think mm -hmm. is Beckett's problem. And then a man for all seasons where there is a worldview. There is a deeply considered morality yeah. undergirding that entire uh, film. And the action is in harmony with Thomas More exhibiting his philosophy through his life. Um, marvelous movie. And, a really interesting counterpoint to the sort of uh, the grandiosity of these two Henry II films we've seen. This was a great decade for those kinds of movies. Yeah. Is is uh, A Man for All Seasons in the 60s or is, is it a post-Watergate film? Man for All Seasons is 66. No shit. Yeah. Interesting. That is 66. Uh, so it's right. It's uh, shortly after um, uh, Beckett. 
Uh, a trivia question. When Beckett, when Burton and O'Toole were both nominated for Best Actor for Beckett, and they both lost, who did they lose to? I have no idea. Rex Harrison for My Fair Lady. <sighs> That's a good who, role. That's a good who, role. Who was in Cleopatra the year before with Richard Burton. I've never seen that movie. The first half with Rex Harrison is quite good. What happens to Rex Harrison? He, he plays Julius Caesar. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, Damn uh, and, uh, and he, he was nominated for his uh, run as Caesar uh, in that. He, he lost to Sidney Poitier in 63, but won in 64 with My Fair Lady, which I think was the absolutely right call. Oh, and yeah, I, I think so, too. Um, it, was, it was a strong year. The other nominees were Anthony Quinn for Zorba the Greek and Peter Sellers for Dr. Strangelove. Mm, so that was a, Sellers that was, is probably the one that I would – the only other one that I would say like yeah. you got a strong argument for. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's it's a, what a it's good a tough year. Call. What a good that year. That was a good year. That was a, but that was a, but this was a decade of you know all of these British actors getting out. This is the year of – the decade of Olivier. This is a decade of uh, Kane. Uh, getting a nomination for Alfie. This was a huge uh, decade for these British actors coming over and, you know, transforming uh, Hollywood and doing, you know, some stagey stuff, but also carrying some stuff uh, into the 70s. Um, so this was a long show. We, th- we said we'd do this in an hour, and here we are 90 minutes in. Well, you know, um, we had a plan, or we thought we did, but there was just so much to go over. Uh, in this in this yes. one podcast, uh, so much water under the bridge. Uh, how how did we get from the start of this podcast to this Christmas? Uh, that will do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Uh, this episode was produced by Keith Carberry. Three Moves Ahead is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. That also has further information about our super secret Discord server where we occasionally talk about strategy games. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, uh, for Troy, this is Rob Zachney wishing you a very Henry II holiday season. <laughs>